Alright, testing from here. Ha ha, ha ha, ha? Could you speak for us um, just as soft as you're likely to speak? Uh, my name is Harun. I mm -hmm. am fellow in Jewish-Muslim relations at the Shalom Hartman Institute. I am wearing sneakers at the moment. Uh, I'm speaking at a normal Perfect. tone. Perfect. Now raise your voice a little bit. Hello. Not too much. You know Hello. when they track like airport okay? security, you know. Yeah. I do that anyway. It's <laughs> my, I like to think it's my my bald head that attracts the light and yeah. directs people's vision to I don't think that's true, but right. you know, it's nice theory. But, you know, it's like they've already got a code orange when you walk in. I mean, if that's you raise true. your voice, it's code red. Like, that's, that's it. That's true, yeah. That's what teams do there, right? Yeah. Okay, so um, shall we jump right in? Yeah, let's Try do it. Try it out? Okay. <coughs> One more thing I have put down and forgotten. Uh, my water is somewhere here. Oh. Okay. Do you have any water on you? Uh, I'm good. I just actually had uh, guzzled some myself. So. Beautiful. Yeah. <coughs> um, so, the name on the podcast uh, that I go by is General Ike. That's my shtick. Okay. Uh, you can just call me Ike if you like. Okay. Um, and we'll, we're, uh, I'm just going to leave about... 25 seconds of just dead air before we start talking so that my sure. sound guy has stuff to clip into. Sure. Okay, cool. <sighs> Our guest today is Harun Mogul. Uh, Harun is the fellow in Jewish-Muslim relations at the Shalom Hartman Institute uh, he taught reporting religion at the Columbia Journalism School, and his new book is How to Be a Muslim, an American Story. Haroon, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you. So you came to America about 20 years ago. No, so I came to New York 20 years to ago. To New York. Yes. And before that, you were... I was in uh, Connecticut, which okay. is a very boring, very suburban state. You were born and raised in Connecticut? I was, yeah. So when I... When I was 18, I decided I wanted to go to a big city for school. So New York was a conveniently located, very large city. And where did you go for school? New York University. Okay. And, yeah. and what did you study there? Uh, I went in uh, with no idea what I was going to study, and I ended up doing philosophy. So I'm not really sure if that was the right decision, nice. but it was a good decision. I, I ended up doing pretty much the same thing. Okay. Did you study? What did you end up studying? I studied philosophy and psychology. Okay. Yeah. So. It's it's the it's the good one if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, it's, it helps you think. And, yeah, you you grew up in a very Muslim family. In a very Muslim family, in a very uh, I'm conscious of how loaded the terms are, mm. um, but a pretty traditional, pretty small C conservative family. Uh, so it was myself. I had an older brother. Both my parents uh, were very uh, embedded in a Muslim identity, and they tried to pass that on to us as well. Uh, so I did grow up in uh, a family that did value education and secular achievement, but also uh, a, a very robust commitment to faith. Was there an experience for you when young of sort of lo losing and rediscovering your faith in some sense? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to, to make sense of that experience. And I think for me it was, I was, I was really the only Muslim student, I was the only Muslim student in my high school. And so there was this tension between who my parents wanted me to be and me trying to figure out who I wanted to be and then everyone around me. And it's really hard to, 
to have an identity as a minority when you're in a place where you know the the dominant culture is so different and so i did have an experience where i guess it was a set of experiences where i i grew distant from faith i became what i call a tactical atheist uh so i wasn't convinced of atheism per right. se uh i just it was more convenient to pretend like god didn't exist uh then i went through a phase <laughs> where i almost became catholic and then i kind of fumbled and stumbled my way back to muslim wow yeah I, I feel like I can unpack that for hours. I, you want to just give me the, the, the two-sentence version on your journey towards and away from Catholicism? I wanted to date a Catholic girl. Right. She ended up breaking up with me, thus began and ended my flirtation with Catholicism. That was three <laughs> sentences, unless you include a semicolon. So, this, I mean, I think that was pretty good. I love the semicolon. That, that was great. Um, okay, so how did you... Uh, you studied philosophy in uni, and then did you, you went straight from there into the sort of work you do now, or was there an interim? My initial plan was I was going to go to law school. Mm -hmm. uh, being from a very typical Pakistani-American household, there was an expectation that you would be some kind of suburban professional. And so if I, I couldn't be a doctor, I would have been a terrible doctor. So I thought I would be an attorney. Uh, I went to law school. I lasted, uh, I kid you not, about three weeks uh, before I dropped out with a hefty bill. Uh, to, to show for it, right. not much else. Uh, but actually, the, the reason I, I kind of went into the, what I call professional Muslim life of constantly explaining and talking about Islam is I was very active in my university's uh, Muslim Students Association. And I was president of the Muslim Club uh, in, the, in my senior, my final semester, uh, or my final year. And about four days into the semester was 9-11. Oof. And so, exactly, I was uh, president of one of the largest Muslim communities in proximity to Ground Zero. So I was a pretty shy 21-year-old kid who did not uh, really ever expect that this would be anything other than a personal passion and maybe a small-scale commitment that suddenly became the center of the world's attention. Uh, and, and that's where I think that was my trial by fire. That was your trauma fire? That was trial by fire, but oh, trauma sorry, fire trauma. as well. I suppose it is traumatic as well. Right. I mean, yeah. You said, I've, I've never heard that expression, trauma fire. Like, it's the fire of trauma that drives your I, career. I think being raised Pakistani is a trauma fire. Fair enough. There's this feeling of permanent inadequacy mm -hmm. that just drives you on and on and on. And, and so how did you emerge? Uh, well, first of all, what were, those, what were those days like? Like 9-11, the next day, the next day? So the day itself was terrifying, I think, for everyone, because, uh, I mean, not just what had happened, but not knowing what was happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember one of the towers was the main uh, cell phone tower in, uh, in lower Manhattan. And so uh, there was no cell phone service. Uh, obviously, the networks were overloaded, as you can imagine. And so uh, not only did we not know what was happening, but we couldn't contact anyone who really knew what was happening. And when we finally were able to get ourselves, you know, one of the towers had collapsed and we managed to get to somewhere where we could stay. I think we went to someone's dormitory room. Uh, that's when we started watching the TV news. And of course, they were endlessly replaying the planes hitting the tower, which was, I mean, when you're living through it, a very traumatic, to use the term that we're kind of operating with, uh, a thing to witness and constantly witness. And I think the days after that were one of severe dislocation and shock. So there was a fear of, you know, is this going to happen again? Uh, what was the purpose of what happened? How are people going to respond to what happened? Uh, what does this mean for my life at university, my life as a Muslim? All of these questions just kind of piled into two or three days. What was the vibe like in the MSA at the time? Oddly enough, in retrospect, uh, to be in New York on that day was terrifying. And unfortunately, I, I wasn't hurt and I, I 
you know, more fortunately, I didn't know anyone who was hurt or injured personally. Uh, my brother did work in the towers, but he was late to work that day. Uh, but I didn't know that at the time. So you're sitting there you're balancing all these thoughts in your head and trying to make sense of what's happening. Uh, but, but after that, in a strange sense, because it was New York City, one of the safest places to be in the U.S. was probably New York City as a Muslim. Uh, given that people were able to distinguish between the Muslim they know down the street and what had just happened. Mm -hmm. And in other parts of the country, I don't think people and people had enough exposure to or experience with Muslims to distinguish between the mosque down the street and what they saw happening a world away. Right. Uh, cool. Um, do you remember what the first official meeting was like afterwards? You were president of the MSA at the time. This is a really good question. I've been talking about this for a long time, and I don't know. I do remember that I, I had connected with several students from our executive board uh, in Washington Square Park, which is kind of the center of university campus, and uh, we decided to walk to the prayer space uh, where we figured you know, a number of students were commuters. They would have no way to get home. Uh, we would at least try to figure out where they would go. Uh, in, in the interim, the, the subway system had been shut down, uh, and most taxi cabs are being repurposed as ambulances or ferrying people and things like that. Uh, and then soon enough, there was military in the city, and it was, you know, this sort of cascading series of events. And I walked into the prayer space, and uh, there was a student there uh, who I had often found myself on opposite sides of many campus debates from, mm -hmm. uh, modern Orthodox student uh, named Israel from Argentina, uh, wearing his kippah, standing in the prayer space and I was I remember being so surprised I was like what are you doing here of all the of all the places you could be today you probably don't want to be in a mosque and I'll never forget he actually he actually said to me and mind you this is just a few hours after the attacks that uh, he said I figured that some of your female students who wear hijab who wear a headscarf might be afraid to walk home today uh, because they'd be afraid that someone might attack them but that if um, they were to walk home with a man with a kippah on that maybe some people would leave them alone. Beautiful. And I remember being blown away that that was where his head was. And it was more, I, I think, moving given that he and I on Israel-Palestine, and you can imagine how campus right. activism and politics are when you're that age especially, were pretty heated. You know, mm -hmm. we were not... We were sort of enemies, right? And it's weird. It's not. It's not civil discourse. That's no, it was not civil around. discourse, right. and it wasn't really discourse either. <laughs> you know, so um, I, I don't remember the first meeting to answer your question. I do remember that happening and being really blown away and thinking to myself that if he can have the presence of mind to do that, then certainly I'm called upon to do a lot too. Okay, so then fast forwarding, how did you come to be the? Uh, the Fellow in Jewish-Muslim Relations at the Shalom Hartman. It's a rather audacious title, isn't it? Um, very, very. It is very. So five years ago, um, a friend of mine who was an imam, or who is an imam uh, in, in North Carolina, a Turkish guy, um, had actually reached out to the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, he knew uh, a fellow at the institute named Yossi Klein Halevi, uh, who's a pretty prominent Israeli author, and basically said to him, if I bring you... Uh, Muslim leaders, will you teach them Judaism in the way that you teach your rabbis? And Yossi kind of said, why? And the imam 
responded that he thought that a good way for Muslim-Jewish relations to change in the United States was if Muslims were able to understand Jewish communities in their own language, in their own terms. And so I, from what I understand or what I've been told, uh, the folks at Hartman laughed and said, sure, uh, assuming that nobody would ever show up. Mm -hmm. And then he found 16 people, myself included, and then the Hartman people were like, oh, now we have to do this. Uh, so I, I did the program five years ago. It was a one-year fellowship where we went to Israel twice in the course of 12 months. And we did a lot of learning programs back in the States. And uh, I stayed involved with the program. Uh, there's now been five cohorts. So f about 100 people have graduated the program. Um, and so about two years ago, as the program was growing, a position opened up to help manage the program. So I, I joined the Hartman Institute part-time. Uh, back two years ago and then last year uh, they asked me if I wanted to join their faculty given that it's a research institution uh, and so my job is to teach uh, courses on Islam to Jewish audiences uh, and to bring Muslim leaders to Israel to study with Israeli scholars. Obviously this is a huge 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 topic but for uh, maybe Jews who are listening now and who let's say completely no, no knowledge of Islam whatsoever what what would be your like first sixty second introduction? You're on one foot. We have many of the same stories and texts, but sometimes we interpret them very differently. Our religious communities took very different trajectories, and so uh, I think there's a lot of common ground between our communities, and there's a lot of superficial similarity between our communities. And there's a lot of very profound fears and mistrust between our communities. And I think um, the modern world kind of collided us into each other, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes rather unintentionally. And uh, I, I do think that Jewish-Muslim relations might be one of the most important interfaith questions Why? of the moment. Because a lot of people in both of our communities really don't trust the other. And that spills out in, in rather obvious ways into politics in the US and Canada, obviously Israel, Palestine. Uh, but in many parts of the world, uh, they've really poisoned relationships and it creates this cycle uh, that you know, has, has the tendency at times to become quite violent. Uh, and, and even if not violent, then, then deeply uh, corrosive. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I mean, there's obviously tensions in Jewish-Christian relationships, but those, those relationships have gone a lot farther in the last 50, 60, 70 years. Well, it's, inter it's interesting you say uh, specifically Jewish-Christian relationships is counterbalance because one of the things that springs to mind when I, I sort of think, well, how bad is it now and how, how good could it be? Um, I think of the Inquisition in 1492 when um, the, at the end of the reconquest of Spain, the Christians were like, right, great opportunity, let's get rid of the Muslims, oh, and right, let's kick out the Jews too. And, um, and then Sultan Bayezid II, I think it was, from Turkey, was, yeah. he, sent, he sent a fleet over to, uh, to rescue Jews from Spain and bring them to Turkey. I think he said, um, was it their, their loss is our gain. Mm -hmm. So what, I mean, that, I mean, that represents the exact opposite in a sense, when the Christians were burning Jews at the stake and the Muslims were rescuing them. Uh, what uh, do you do? You feel like that's something that we could? I mean, the second part, not the first. Ideally, no one's burning anyone at the stake. Hopefully, that's that's something. Do you think feel like that's something attainable in our lifetimes, in our children's lifetime? 
I'm always a little bit wary of, of referencing the past because there's good in it and there's bad in it. Sure. I think the challenge is to, to find the good and learn from the bad. But I, I do think that things change faster than we can expect. Uh, it's very hard to see that in the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, you mentioned Sultan Bayezid. That was actually, you know, many, obviously many Jews resettled in Bosnia and Eastern Europe. And uh, which were Ottoman territories in the time. I was in Bosnia uh, about a year ago, or uh, maybe two years ago, uh, right, uh, I can't even remember the date now, which is embarrassing, but basically around the, the day of Brexit. <laughs> and it occurred to me that about 100 years before, Britain as an empire was literally determining the boundaries of countries all over the world. And within 100 years, Britain uh, basically drew itself out of the European Union, which might be one of the most short-sighted decisions in, in recent memory, uh, where, I mean, the country literally just asked itself to be removed from the wealthiest block of countries in the world. And this is not as a Pakistani to revel in Britain's misery, even though maybe a little bit. A little bit. Uh, a little bit. It's, and the American in me as well. Um, but it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's where we come together it's, as it's, Americans and Pakistanis. Right. Yeah. It's like, ah, oh, this is the 1776 and 1947. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? This is for a lot of years. Um, but it, it's just, in, it's kind of amazing because, you know, if you were to live in 1917, you would never imagine to yourself, you know, you would never imagine that Britain would not be kind of the most hegemonic power in the world. Right. Even 20 years ago, if someone had told you that China was going to be the world's largest economy, possibly you would have thought that ridiculous. So uh, I guess what I mean by that is right now, um, as a Muslim, there are a lot of disheartening things. Uh, and, and maybe this is naive and delusional, or maybe this is the way I get myself through my day. But mm-hmm. I like to think to myself that things can change. You just kind of have to plant the seeds. Uh, and, and if trends go your way, then those seeds can grow into something uh, pretty remarkable. What, what's your vision of a better relationship look like on the ground, practically speaking? Practically speaking, uh, it starts small. Uh, I would like that when Muslim and Jewish communities disagree with each other, that they don't demonize each other. So if Muslim communities uh, have issues with, let's say, Israeli policies, those don't turn into um, or are not motivated by anti-Semitism, that we can have political disagreements that do not become uh, existential conflicts. Uh, On a more optimistic note, I would love to see that uh, those who are studying to become leaders in Muslim spaces have the chance to, to robustly and deeply study other traditions mm-hmm. from those traditions themselves. So uh, I would like for Muslim leaders to be able to study Jewish tradition on its own terms from Jewish scholars and vice versa. Uh, because I, I, I think it's very dangerous when we, when we allow ourselves to believe that we understand another tradition without, without allowing that tradition to speak for itself. Great. Yeah. Uh, your new book, How to Be a Muslim, an American Story. It's awesome. <laughs> wow. I'm not biased. First review. Um, Last when, review. When is, <laughs> is it out now? Is it coming out? It is out. Uh, it came out actually a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think I'll get in trouble for saying this, but Trump has been good for business. Uh, I, being totally honest, I mean, I would like to think it's a great book. Um, I'm, you know, I'm yeah, he'd probably take it as a compliment. It. He probably would. Yeah. Um, I guess what I mean is, you know, I, I wrote this book to make sense of, to take this back to the earlier in the conversation, I wrote this book to make sense of uh, my own journey out of faith and back into faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the title is very tongue in cheek. How to be a Muslim is mostly the story of how I failed to be a Muslim or was wrestling with the idea of being a Muslim. And, you know, Trump won. And right now, anything with the word Muslim in it automatically attracts interest. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, had Hillary Clinton won the election, 
possibly the book would not have generated the amount of interest it has. So, you know, I'd like to think it's a good book, but I also realize that it's the moment in which it was released, uh, where there's a lot of concern or curiosity over this question. But it came out a year ago, and uh, I mean, I just did a book reading a couple of days ago in Sydney, so it's still going. Fantastic. And it, where can where can people buy the book if they want the book? Uh, Amazon, if that's not blasphemous. Uh, but uh, bookstores uh, all around have it. I just went to the Kinokonoya in uh, in downtown Sydney and told them to carry the book without telling them that I'd written the book. Uh-huh. I just sort of very casually inquired as to whether the book was available. <laughs> and the person who was doing the checking was apparently the... the um, I don't know the title, but the person who orders books for the store. Mm. Uh, and so he said, wow, this looks really interesting. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll reserve you a copy, but I'm going to order like 10 or 15 for the store. I think it'll be really cool. And I was like, yeah, sure. That's fantastic. And then, yeah, so I walked away. So Did you reserve a copy? Well, I mean, I'm going to be gone. So right. I may have reserved a copy, but I don't know if that's immoral. But well, I figure you can do anything to sell your book. Woof. Um, Within reason. All right. I'm not going to tell you how to be a Muslim. Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> Harun, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Blessings with your Appreciate wife. Appreciate it. That's a wrap. That was fun. Fantastic. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I normally like we normally have a lot more time. We can get into stuff. But yeah. I really, I enjoyed, I enjoyed being under the pump a bit to get the questions out. No, it was fun. That was great. Can I, can I ask actually something? Sure. Um, I suppose we could splice it in, but probably won't. But just the the, the figure ground inversion. We got to get you moving after this but mm-hmm. there's a sort of um there's this thing where it's like people you can kind of see the islam from the outside in mm-hmm. one of two ways right you can see it as a sort of a holistic religious system of self-development and law and, and structure and culture mm-hmm. with like oh this jihad thing that we have to sort of figure out yeah or you can see it as fundamentally like a a what a um a system of global conquest with like a religion built a in religion to deliver the payload. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you I love that expression to deliver the payload. <laughs> deliver the payload. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say that out loud because I'll get fired from everything. All right, we're um, cutting this. Perrin, this bit does not go in the interview. Yeah, but but um, but what's like? Do you do you have a take on that? Like, do you have a like? I see it as this, and this is obviously like the. I mean, I I. I'm much more inclined to and, and sort of involved in the Sufi community. So I, mm-hmm. I tend to see things much more as, as spiritual and aesthetic and communal. And actually even less communal now. I mean, I, I think that sometimes communi- community, the idea of Islam as an ethnic identity or a, a communal identity takes away from spiritual practice because it becomes a surrogate um, for that. Oh, do we have to be out of here? We're, are you, no. No, wait, we, we're, we're, we were, were just recording a podcast, it. but yeah. We'll be on no, no, you're here. fine. Um, yeah, so I, but that's, I mean, that's more uh, prescriptive as opposed to descriptive. <laughs> you know, that's what I, I should like it to be, 